Blog Talk Radio. Ancient Good afternoon, good evening, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues, uh, no matter where you are and when you're listening. Welcome back to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And if you're listening live, you know it is Wednesday at 11 o'clock Pacific, and that's where I am, uh, in beautiful southern Oregon. And today, uh, I am very happy to have with me uh, Daniel Minty and Julie Staples. Uh, They are here talking about the topic reclaiming life after trauma and uh, before we get into that though I just want to give a shout out to Diva Haley Uh, she uh, has the opening music on the show today in that cut uh, you think might be called Ancient Mother but it's actually called Narayani so if you're looking for that music um, that's the name of the cut if um, uh, if you'd like to have that for uh, you know, for your music collection. And uh, also, um, after the interview today, I hope you will stick with me because I have something very special uh, I want to share with you, um, a special writing, a little bit, um, I wouldn't say late, I'd say it may be extending the season uh, of, uh, of honoring our mothers, uh, you know, this month of May. Um, a brilliant writer, Carol Dixon, has written a piece called "Becoming a Mother," and we're going to be, um, you know, we're going to be, um, you know, uh, sharing that with you today. Um, so anyway, I'm going to uh, get right to the show now and uh, uh, first tell you about uh, Daniel Minty and uh, Julie Staples. Uh, So you'll know their background. Uh, Daniel's an adjunct professor at Georgetown University School of Medicine, and uh, he has a private practice in uh, Taos, New Mexico. He is the author of four books. Uh, He teaches integrative approaches to wellness at universities and training centers worldwide. And Julie, Julie Staples, uh, well, she's the research director at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, and uh, she's also an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University. She's conducted research in mind-body medicine for traumatized populations for over 25 years. She's a faculty member of the International Kundalini Yoga Therapy Professional Training Program, and she currently teaches online courses for yoga teachers, yoga therapists, and health professionals in the science of yoga. So guys, uh, thank you so much uh, for being with me today. You are welcome, Karen. Thanks for having us. Okay. Yes, thank you. Okay, great, great. So um, let me just start with uh, maybe the obvious. Um, I, I know as, uh, uh, as I discovered that, uh, you know, I had PTSD, I, I know when you tell people, uh, you know, that you had PTSD, a lot of people go, huh, what, what what's that? Uh, in fact, uh, I had someone even say, well, I just thought soldiers got PTSD. Um, so, Daniel, can you uh, kind of tell us, um, you know, in layman's terms so um, it's easy to understand, what is it? Thanks, Karen. This is a question that comes up regularly. Maybe we'll start by talking about trauma. So... Trauma comes from a Greek word that is the word for wound. And I believe it's the most widespread form of suffering in the world today. 
nobody escapes getting wounded physically, psychologically, emotionally. This wounding or trauma is just a price that we pay for life on Earth at this time. And all of the great world paths have noted this. Buddhism's first noble truth is life is suffering. So most people who experience trauma, which can be military trauma, uh, secondary to firefights or military sexual trauma, which is actually much more pervasive than PTSD re related to combat. We've worked with folks who have been diagnosed with life-threatening and terminal illnesses, who've been in automobile accidents, who've experienced forced migration from their home to a, a new land. Most of us who experience this kind of trauma also experience what I would call adaptive or healthy negative emotion. This could include a sadness at the death of a friend or anger at being attacked or abused in some way. And we don't need psychotherapy for healthy or adaptive negative emotion. We just feel the grief, say, at the loss of a loved one or the loss of a limb. We've worked with people who have lost arms and legs as a result of disease and automobile accidents. And it would actually seem strange to not feel sadness if we lose a loved one or lose a part of our own structure. Just as it would feel strange not to experience anger if, say, our child is assaulted by someone. So those emotions take care of themselves. We feel them. We make some behavioral changes that they seem to be pointing towards. And we get on with our lives. PTSD points to something that happens to about one-third of trauma survivors. So one out of three uh, people who have experienced a rape, say, or have been in military firefights, develop this thing we call PTSD. So at the 10,000-foot view, PTSD is a maladaptive response to a traumatic experience. It's a state of ongoing uneasiness that's expressed in our bodies. Julie will be talking a bit more about this. Many, many effects in our endocrine system our uh, central nervous system, the enteric nervous system, and right on down to the level of our DNA. These changes are experienced emotionally. Instead of feeling angry at, at having been raped, say, we may live on for years or decades in a state of grinding bitterness and resentment that in essence poisons ourselves because we're dropping all of these stress chemicals into our bloodstream and feeling the effects of living in that condition. It, okay. It, it, and well I well I don't think you uh, I mean PTSD did you say what the letters stood for? Oh, thank you. Yes, post traumatic stress disorder. So it's not the trauma of being in, a, in combat, say. It's the trauma downstream from being in combat. And it's a stress response that affects us physically, emotionally, relationally, oftentimes creates insomnia, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, that kind of thing. So I would consider these maladaptive or unhealthy responses to trauma, and that's the target of our protocol, uh, addressing those maladaptive symptoms we call PTSD. 
So let me ask you, um, Daniel, uh, with PTSD, when one of these events, for instance, I mean, you've, you've given a number of different events, and uh, I'm sure there are you know, hundreds of thousands of other things that can also bring on the PTSD. Uh, do people know right away that they've been damaged uh, by the particular uh, event, or is it something that might reveal itself as time goes on? It can certainly happen in both directions. We work with people who experience, say, an automobile accident and then realize that they're very reluctant to get back into a car. And they, if they know a little bit about psychology, might realize, oh, I'm experiencing PTSD related to my automobile accident. I have also worked with patients who have lived for 30 years, 40 years, telling themselves, I had a, a great childhood, so it's kind of a storybook childhood, and then some kind of intrusive symptom, flashbacks or nightmares, crops up, and they realize, gee, maybe there's more to the story of my childhood than I have been realizing. One of the ways that we would diagnose PTSD is this kind of erasure of memory. And as someone opens that door, they might realize, okay, I walked to the house that night in college, and I remember waking up the next morning, but I don't remember anything that happened between arriving at that party and the next morning. And this would be a finger pointing at the probability that there is traumatic experience that has been removed from conscious awareness, but now could be driving PTSD symptoms in any of those dimensions that I mentioned. So you've mentioned a lot of examples of PTSD symptoms, and um, in the materials you sent me, it says that CBD, uh, CBT can address the symptoms. What is CBT, and can you speak to that a bit? CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it's a very, very old approach to healing and wellness. The earliest mention that I see uh, in the world literature is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, which he wrote about... 2,000 years ago. And in the sutra, Patanjali points out that the emotional meaning of our life is a product of our thoughts about our life and our behaviors in our life. And he very succinctly says, as does the Tao Te Ching and many of the other great world guides, if you don't like your emotional experience of your life, you can change it by changing how you think and what you do. So I have been practicing, uh, both professionally and in my own life, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for about 35 years now. And it is a first-line treatment for many disorders in the literature. It's very clear anxiety disorders, panic attacks, phobias, and so forth respond better to CBT than to anything else, including uh, psychotropic medication. It's the treatment of choice for depression. It is less researched when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder because that's a relatively new diagnostic criteria that came about in the 1970s, whereas anxiety and depression have been recognized for 100 years as being mental disorders. But there's a growing so body Daniel, of is, just, just a quick question. Uh, CBT, um, is that another term for talk therapy, or is it different? It includes talking to a therapist. I consider my role as a CBT therapist to be the equivalent of a personal trainer or a coach. And in our book, we lay out about 30 experiments or workouts that people can do 
including cognitive behavioral and yoga therapy methods. I help the patient understand the assignment. They go out in the world and do the workouts, and they bring the data back, and we analyze the data. We have well over 100 methods that we can offer someone who's suffering from PTSD symptoms. The reason we have so many is that one size never fits all. And the method that might crush nightmares, say, for one person, or flashbacks to the traumatic event itself, would not help the next person at all. So instead of continuing to do something that doesn't work, we would just move on and select a new method. Got it. So, Daniel, would you say that um, a vast majority of people don't really know uh, they need help like yours? Maybe they don't know uh, they have PTSD. Uh, I mean, we've normalized so much uh, abuse and exploitation in our society. You know, we say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. You know, humans have always been like that. Or you even said at the top of the show, um, you know, like you, it, as if a resignation that, you know, life is suffering. Um, do you think most people aren't even aware that uh, maybe they need some sort of adjustment? That's a wonderful question. Uh, we could widen the scope here to include anxiety and depression. I have worked with people who have been experiencing PTSD symptoms and or anxiety or depression symptoms for decades, and it never occurred to them that something was off because since they were very young, that's how the world has felt. So oftentimes, person living their life in that way wouldn't know that they had a treatable disorder unless they listened to a podcast, say, and realized, wow, those people seem to be talking about me. Or they read right. a book or they talk to a friend who had uh, uh, nightmares and flashbacks and no longer has them as a result of receiving treatment. So I think that it's very common that people just don't understand. They know that they're suffering. That experience is firsthand, but they don't realize what I'm suffering is a treatable mental health disorder. Well, and then that can have a domino effect, can't it? I mean, um, if that's sort of uh, the state you're in, and you know, maybe it's uh, been there with you all your life, maybe it's uh, as a result of something that's happened you know, rather recently or a while ago, um, wouldn't it affect uh, per perhaps how you see yourself, how you see the world out there, how you interact with other people? Um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I wonder what you think about that. Absolutely. So our behavior creates data, and our brain notices what the data is, and draws conclusions based on the data. So I was treating a, a woman who had experienced extensive sexual trauma in the military, and she concluded that she was not good enough, and that's why bad things happened to her. So she had this belief I'm not good enough, I know it, and if I get to know other people, they're going to know it too, and that will be very, very painful to experience rejection uh, from, from people that I would hope to be able to connect with. So she told me two stories a week apart. In the first story, she walked into a party, it was around the holidays. Someone looked at her and frowned. She concluded, oh, that person doesn't like me. They know I'm not good enough. So her behavior followed the conclusion. She went over by herself in a corner. She got uh, you know, a plate of food. And she spent the party by herself, which then created data that proved to her brain, yeah, you have it right. It's the other people, they're good enough to be talking to each other and laughing and having fun, but not you. So the next week, she went out and she had a book club meeting. 
She walked into the book club. Someone looked at her and smiled. With her belief solidly in place, she concluded, oh, that person is mocking me. And instead of joining the circle, she went off by herself and again recreated the data set that proved that she had it right. Being right in our self-perception is the first order of business. If we're wrong about who we are, they'll put us in a little padded room. So even if who we are is very, very painful, we will prove to ourselves day and night, again and again, that we have it right. And it's only when a light bulb goes on and we go, I don't want to keep doing this. I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm hopeless. I don't want to live this way. That we might reach out to a program like ours or pick up our book. We get phone calls from people who checked out our book at the library in Los Angeles, went through, did the exercises, and after 20 years of PTSD symptoms, healed themselves. So it's very clear to me we don't need Daniel, we don't need Julie in the picture. We just need to connect people with this technology that we've developed, and they can heal themselves. Well, and I, uh, and, and you know, you're the expert. I'm, I'm not. You know, I mean, I've done a deep dive into this since um, having PTSD myself, and uh, I just had a, a book uh, that uh, launched this month called Normalizing Abuse. Um, and uh, what I've found over and over again, and I seem to see over and over again, is uh, people wear blinders, and they're almost afraid to look at, you know, take that, you know, take it out and look at it and deal with it and admit it. Um, you know, I've had some people email me and say, wow, um, you know, I didn't realize uh, that this or that had been going on in my life until something in, in the book triggered it. Or some people have even said, oh, well, I can't even read it because it triggers this or that. But in, in, But it seems like we dare I say we normalize the abuse to survive, we keep it stuffed uh, in the, you know, in the back of our mind. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to feel it. Uh, but then if we don't, um, you know, maybe we kick the dog or we abuse our employees or we marry the wrong person or, you know, we have toxic friendships and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Absolutely. And, the way that I would understand what's going on there is we've developed a maladaptive belief system that would include things like uh, I'm, I'm not good enough, uh, nobody likes me, I'm damaged goods, if anyone really got to know me, they would reject me. And then our behavior actualizes those beliefs and creates that data that shows us that's right. Yeah, you're all alone, you've been alone for decades. That proves that, that you're damaged goods and that no one would ever like you. So we create these self-fulfilling prophecies with our beliefs, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And it's only when something shifts and we say, gee, maybe there's a different reality. Maybe life could feel different or I could have a different life than I've been living, that we would then reach out to, to someone who might be able to help us. I have one more question for you, then I want to jump over to Julie. I don't want to neglect her here because uh, she has some um, important pieces of this puzzle. Um, <laughs> uh, again, you know, with my everyday woman's, um, you know, sleuthing hat on, you know, not a, not a, you know, trained or licensed therapist, you know, I look out at the world and um, I feel like we're living in a traumatized society. You know, the people we elect to office, the, you know, the things that we tolerate, you know, from our elected officials, um, the, uh, you know, our inability to um, uh, cure this, you know, polarity that we have, you know, on the left and the right and, uh, and, and all the rest, you know, the inability to look at science or truth, uh, um, you know, conspiracy theories. Um, it, when you look at all of that, does that scream to you, um, Americans or humans um, or a traumatized people that desperately need help? 
Well, absolutely. And uh, I really buffer my exposure to the media because it's a very, very thin slice of reality. I wrote uh, as a professional journalist when I was younger, and in the newsroom they said if it bleeds, it leads. So what sells newspapers, magazines, books, programs uh, is violence. You know, uh, either automobile accidents that uh, used to be called automobile murders, not accidents, um, and all of the other murders that occur. When I look around the world, and I, I teach around the world, I've, I've been lots of places, mostly what I see is people behaving pretty well, taking care of each other, raising their children, being kind to their animals, taking care of the earth. That's the other part of the story, and I think it's really important to hold both in view, because if we're focused only on one direction, we're missing data that's critical for us to live adaptive well lives. Yeah, to be hopeful. Yes. Yeah, I get it. Um, okay, um, so Julie, um, you're going to talk a little bit about yoga uh, to address PTSD. Um, would that be considered sort of an, uh, an alternative uh, therapy, um, of, you know, that's come along recently, or has this been recognized as a, um, you know, a treatment for a long period of time to treat, you know, these sorts of disorders that Daniel and I have been chatting about? I'm not sure when the very first studies were done on yoga for PTSD. I'm guessing about 10 years ago. There's been quite a few studies, so it it has been recognized as being helpful for PTSD symptoms. And I'm sure most of your, your readers know that, you know, yoga consists of, of practices that involve asanas, body, body uh, positions, and, and physical exercise, as well as breathing and meditation. And so the, the concept in terms of how yoga might address PTSD symptoms is, is based on, you know, that the trauma is held in the body and that, that doing these particular practices can help, you know, release the body, change our breathing, change the way we're holding ourselves, and, and help the trauma symptoms. Um, but there are actually other ways that, um, that yoga can, can help uh, trauma symptoms, which I can address if, if you'd like. Um, so would that be sort of along, you know, the lines of integrative medicine? Uh, yeah, well, integrative medicine is, is mostly like what we would consider putting two forms of, of, of therapy together, like, uh, the, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which Daniel addressed, which affects, you know, how you think and, and how that affects your emotions, and, and also um, uh, yoga, which, which would be, of course, addressing more the physical aspect. That would be what I would consider integrative medicine. But there's some really nice research on, um, on the body and how uh, yoga affects different parts of the body and brain that are directly related to PTSD symptoms, which is one of the ways that I think yoga can actually help address PTSD symptoms. Uh, one of these is, is sleep. Sleep is a, a major uh, uh, symptom of PTSD. People really have trouble sleeping, and there's a lot of uh, evidence that yoga can help sleep. I can discuss some of that a little bit later in the interview if there's time. Um, and then there's parts of the brain that are affected by PTSD, um, like the amygdala that has to do with traumatic memories. And, and that part of the brain has been shown to be like overactive uh, when people have PTSD. And meditation has been shown in MRI machines to, to, to change the activity of the amygdala to bring it more back into a normal state. So there's, there's many other examples in, part, in terms of the brain and in terms of um, neurotransmitters like GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, which is a relaxing neurotransmitter. That has actually been shown in one hour of walking uh, compared to one hour of doing yoga. That I'm, I'm sorry, one hour of reading compared to one hour of doing yoga. Yoga actually increases GABA, um, which is reduced during PTSD. So there's a lot of ways that yoga might help PTSD symptoms. And the integrative medicine part comes in when you can also address the other side, which is the thought patterns that like CBT would address. 
Okay. And uh, and, I, and I want to address what you said, but I do want to say I'm, uh, you know, to apologize to both you guys and my listeners, uh, those of you who have been following me for, you know, for the last few years. I know that my husband had a, um, a, a traumatic brain injury, and uh, he was here in the room with me today, and he didn't realize that I was on the air. So you've probably heard some noise in the background, and uh, he just wasn't cognizant uh, to to be able to prevent that. So my apologies, uh, my apologies to everyone about that. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I mean, I realize you guys have a, uh, you know, a toolkit of, um, of, of different modalities to help people, fortunately. Um, and uh, I wonder, um, is it more difficult when you run into someone, for instance, that maybe religion has taught them to be afraid of yoga? Um, uh, you know, is, is that something that uh, has come up for you at all? Or, um, you know, and, and, and would you just try an alternative therapy for someone who, um, you know, was afraid yoga lets the devil in kind of a thing? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, actually, uh, you know, we never want to have anybody do anything that they don't want to do. People have to want to make a change, and they, they have to want to practice whatever, you know, whatever it is that they feel comfortable practicing. So in our particular case, we've done a research study on our protocol, at, which involves, you know, eight weeks of doing kundalini yoga and cognitive behavioral therapy once a week in a group setting. And when we recruited people, of course, only the people that, were interested in doing yoga were recruited. So we, I've never personally had a problem with uh, people not wanting to do it based on religious beliefs because the people that would come to my classes or, or join our research study and come to our program would be people that are, would already be open to yoga. But certainly um, that, is a, that is a very real thing, and it is, it is out there. I know there are people that would, be, would object to chanting, for instance, because they didn't understand the language we were using or what the words would mean. And, uh, but they might be open to the other parts of the, of the practice. So if I have somebody who is in my yoga class who doesn't want to do do the chanting that we do for a meditation, you know, they don't, they don't have to do it. They can just breathe and, and follow along without the chanting. So I do think, though, if people are, are inclined to think that yoga is a bad thing for whatever reason, that they, they just won't come to, you know, come to us for help. So we haven't really had, I haven't had to deal with that personally. Right. Well, and, and I also have a question about the amygdala. Um, I read an article once, and I wonder if you think this is sound research, um, that uh, they, they almost, um, I, I think they actually went as far as to say uh, the amygdala uh, of liberals is different from the amygdala of conservatives, you know, in size. Uh, and that tends to, depending on your amygdala, you tend to be someone that's, you know, open and more of a risk taker versus someone who's maybe more fear-based or conservative. Um, is, is there anything to that? Or, or, you know, is that a study you've maybe, you know, uh, come across? I have not heard of that. I know, you know, the amygdala does, does relate to fear for sure. And, and people that have, um, and, and also different parts of the brain talk to each other. So um, there, you know, it's, it's not only the amygdala, the hippocampus, the anterior cingulate cortex, all these parts are connected. But um, it, fear is a big, is, a, is obviously one of the basis of many of the symptoms of PTSD. So um, there would be a connection between amygdala and fear. I don't know if there's a connection between, uh, you know, political, uh, um, you know, positions or not. We do know the hippocampus, for example, is one part of the brain that really changes, changes size. You mentioned changing size. And uh, it actually is, is is smaller in people with depression and PTSD. And when people um, either take antidepressant medications or, or do meditation, the hippocampus increases in size. There's actually a growth in that part of the brain. So we do know that there's, there is a lot of neuroplasticity. The brain can change uh, both in activation and in size. And how that, I'm sure that must relate to your, you know, your overall viewpoints and how you are in the world. I don't know. Uh, specifically about that research study that you mentioned, though. Right, right. Well, um, can you tell us a little bit how you developed the protocol uh, in your self-help book? 
Sure. Uh, well, the the yoga the yoga protocol was actually developed uh, by my colleague, Dr. Shanti Shantikar, who is the director of what we call it's called the Guru Ramdas Center for Medicine and Humanology. It is actually the organization that is the teacher training program for Kundalini Yoga, which is the lineage that I pra- that I practice. And uh, when these there's there's actually many different kinds of yoga sets and meditations to help a lot of different symptoms. And so when she put these together, she basically chose yoga sets that would, would help the symptoms of PTSD, like being able to relax people. We have a meditation that we use for sleep, which, I, again, I can discuss that research later that's actually had a, a randomized control study done on it. It's a breathing meditation, as well as, um, as, well as just, just other meditations, like a meditation for self-efficacy, which helps people believe that what they're doing can make a difference, and that's been shown to aid in healing. So the yoga Yoga sets were developed, were put together in a certain way so that um, it would help those symptoms. And they're taught in a certain way so that um, people aren't overwhelmed when we teach the yoga. They, we, we don't teach new sets every single week. We, we like teach one particular yoga set or meditation, then we drop that one out and introduce a new one to help people just integrate everything and not be overwhelmed. And of course, the CBT portion of the protocol is just um, you know, Daniel's practice and his line of, his lineage of cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, the types of exercises or practices that people could do to help change their beliefs belief system so that they can help change their emotional state. But that's, that's basically, we also thought, you know, we knew that cognitive behavioral therapy helped uh, PTSD symptoms because that's been widely studied. And we knew that yoga helps PTSD symptoms because that's been studied. And we thought, wow, if we put the two together, maybe it'll help even more. And that was, we would approach both the physical and the emotional aspect. And that's why we, we decided to do this protocol is, and, and put those two together. And, and, I mean, I guess it goes without saying that your protocols are evidence-based. Uh, right. Well, because, right, because there has been a lot of research on cognitive behavioral therapy and there has been research on uh, yoga for PTSD, and especially this particular uh, protocol that we have is in kundalini yoga there's a randomized control study that was done uh, a few years back that that looked at ptsd symptoms and uh this particular study also found that it not only did it help with ptsd symptoms but it also helped with sleep it helped uh, with perceived stress people had greater resilience, lower stress, and lower anxiety after doing this protocol. So there is, and randomized control study, of course, is like the gold standard where you have your people that have PTSD, and those results are compared to people that actually did not do the yoga. And the same thing with the cognitive behavioral therapy. And as I said, there was a randomized control study done on sleep using the meditation that we use for sleep, which was, which was quite impressive. And uh, over 80% of the people that participated in that study, they had what they call, they had trouble falling asleep. And uh, over 80% of them at the end that had done the yoga actually were, um, had, had like clinical improvement in their, in their sleep symptoms and they, their, uh, their ability to fall asleep faster. So yeah, there is definitely evidence, uh, scientific evidence to support these techniques. Okay. And, you know, um, I, I'm not sure that we've mentioned the title of your book yet. Please um, oh. tell us the title. <laughs> oh, the title is called Reclaiming Life. That. <laughs> it's okay. It's called Reclaiming Life After Trauma, Healing PTSD with Cognitive Behavioral Therapy and Yoga. That's the title of our book. And it has, it's the self-help book, and it has practical exercises for both uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy and the kundalini yoga. And in addition to that, we have a website with the same name that has, uh, I have demonstrations of the uh, yoga set meditations that are taught in the book so people can actually follow along. It's sometimes a little easier to follow a technique on a video or a meditation on a video than it is to actually read it in a book. So we, we provide those tools as well. Okay, and well, I know um, you know listeners uh, or viewers. If you know you happen to be uh, you know on television or something, they like to hear about uh, actual people and their success stories. Uh, would maybe each of you like to share a story uh, with listeners that um, um, you know you feel would be relevant? I'll let Daniel cover that. He has, he has, I think, the success stories down. So, Daniel, you want to go ahead and answer that question? Yeah, I would love to. I'd love to 
<clears throat> talk about helping people reclaim their lives. <clears throat> and there are <clears throat> two stories. Or uh, the first isn't a story, but it's a paper that I read yesterday. <clears throat> it came out in Current Biology. And it's a study of uh, our nearest living relatives, uh, gorillas, from Rwanda. There is a massive data set that <clears throat> uh, NGO has accumulated there since the 1970s. And they went in to look at what happened to young gorillas who experienced trauma. And the trauma could be losing a parent or seeing a, a, another baby gorilla killed or that kind of thing. And the data demonstrated that young males, this wasn't true for females, but young males who experienced that trauma and then lived past age six actually lived longer lives than did gorillas who did not experience trauma. So <clears throat> I thought it was an indication of what we call post-traumatic growth, which would be the upside of healing when we experience post-traumatic stress disorder, that for some individuals, apparently both human and non-human, trauma can actually lead to greater longevity and better life. Mm. In looking at the <clears throat> data, the researchers hypothesized that there were two elements that led to these traumatized gorillas living longer and prospering more than their untraumatized colleagues. And those included the fact that they were on a preserve, so there were abundant resources available. There were not shortages of food and water and that kind of thing. And also that the gorillas have very elaborated and stable social groups. So a young gorilla who lost its parents, say, would very likely be adopted by other parents and raised as though it were their own offspring. And the authors believe that those inputs, enough uh, resources and enough social support might very well translate into post-traumatic growth in humans as well. Hmm. So I'll tell you a story about a human <clears throat> who experienced extensive early trauma Maybe in some Wait, ways Daniel. Wait, Daniel. Yeah. Daniel. 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 Before you go there, I um, you said that that study with the gorillas um, uh, was with male gorillas. Uh, was 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 it different with females, or did they only track the males? They tracked both, and there was not that effect in females. So and do they have any idea why? Not yet, but that would be another question. Okay. What is different about okay. being a female grade ape who experiences early trauma? Okay. Because they did not find the same uh, results for females. Okay. All right. Uh, sorry for interrupting you there. But, yeah, go on and tell us a success story about our, our fellow humans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So um, uh, a patient that I'll call Susan experienced probably the most severe and extensive childhood trauma of anyone I've ever known. Uh, her earliest memory when she was a toddler was looking into her mother's eyes as her mother choked her and seeing hatred in her mother's eyes and realizing I can't breathe, I, I'm probably going to die. From there, things got worse in that <clears throat> this parent brought a, a series of men into the home who sexually assaulted Susan during the entire time that she was growing up. So when Susan arrived at adulthood, uh, married, had children, became a very successful professional, she had concluded, well, life just feels this way. 
I have nightmares a lot. I'm very hypervigilant. I have an exaggerated startle response. I have a deep sense of dread that something bad is about to happen to me. But this is just the way life is. And then she reached out to me, and we began working together and applied the protocol that Julie and I presented in our book. And she started to make changes in her sense of herself, her mood, her perception of danger, her body. That was a big part. And one of the last methods that we used was mindfulness practice, where she set aside some time each day to just sit quietly, not do cognitive behavioral therapy, not do yoga, not do anything, just sit and pay attention. So a couple of months into that, she had an experience. She was driving down a very ordinary city street, and suddenly this entire lifetime of anguish and pain fell away. And when she was describing it to me, she says, you know, it was the middle of the day, but I could see all the way into the center of the galaxy, all the stars, all the darkness, all the colors, and I realized I'm free from everything. I've always been free. <laughs> I started bawling as I was driving, you know, tears of gratitude, tears of relief. I realized everything has always been working exactly as it's meant to do. All I ever needed to do was sit back and accept that. She said any sense of seriousness vanished. Nothing matters. Wait, wait, I mean everything matters. And then she said, you know, I'm not making much sense, am I? And I said, Susan, you are making the profoundest sense. What you're describing is very familiar to me as a Zen practitioner. You had an enlightenment experience. You realized who you really are, the structure of reality, and you realize, as Meister Eckhart wrote, the structure of reality is the structure of divinity. Reality itself is divine life. So this profound healing experience by this woman who I was in her 40s at this point, uh, said to me that the protocol that we've developed, if it's the right fit for the right human being, it will transform their experience of the entire universe. And perhaps you can wow. hear in my, the passion that I bring to offering this to, to my fellow suffering humans. Well, that's a, that's an incredible story to uh, end our interview on, guys. Um, certainly, uh, you know, full of hope, definitely full of hope. Um, so can uh, uh, either one of you uh, maybe tell people how they can learn more about, uh, about your work and obviously give us the title of your book and your contact information again? Sure, yeah, I'll give you yeah. the title. Our of website book. is Reclaiming Life After Trauma, and there are links to multiple resources there um, that uh, are all free. There's no cost for any of those. You can also go to my website, uh, danielminty.com. A lot of free resources there, including... Um, my blogs, which I have over 100, I think 150 posts about integrative medicine and integrative wellness. I also have an online program, a webinar that I run each week called All Things CBT. It's a very low-cost subscription program for anyone, professionals, lay people, students in training who would like to learn more about cognitive and behavioral approaches to wellness. So any of our listeners would be welcome to access all of those resources. And I'll let Julie speak to some that are uniquely hers. 
If anyone is interested in learning more about the science of yoga and meditation, um, I have a website, awarenesstechnologies.net, and there uh, I, I have classes periodically and recordings from classes that are cover the science of yoga uh, for various diseases and disorders and how yoga works in general and the scientific basis of that. Okay. Well, guys, thank you so much. Um, uh, it's It's been great to chat with you. You've shared so much important information. And uh, I have to believe that, um, you know, maybe, maybe people who can't afford it or don't have access to it, uh, hearing you say that, uh, you know, you can – you know they can pick up your book uh, and improve their lives with uh, or some of your online free stuff. Um, I can't imagine that um, uh, you know people would not avail themselves of that and uh, um, give themselves a better quality of life. Uh, thank you so much for making so much available free uh, and um, you know for for writing this book and um, you know helping our fellow neighbors out there heal. Thank you. Thank You're you, so Susan. welcome, Karen. Thanks so much for yeah. providing this community and welcome, welcoming us into it. Very grateful to you for doing this life-saving work. Thank you, guys. All right, well, best of luck to you, and uh, thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll be in touch. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was uh, Daniel Minty and Julie Staples and uh, their book, again, Reclaiming Life After Trauma. Uh, And before we go on to that special reading uh, to celebrate uh, mothers, uh, I just had a word here from Joe Carson. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher writing about Joe Carson's book, Celebrate Wildness, Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Ferrotharia Path. I love this book, how special this work is, and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s, and through the years, only found snippets of information on Ferrotharia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods, reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Ferrofaria's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Ferrofaria. Celebrate Wildness is a dense art book quality hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Ferrofaria website at ferrofaria.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And for those of you who have been following my work, uh, maybe you get my newsletter or you see us on Facebook or maybe you've heard me mention it on the show, Uh, this month, uh, May, which is um, Mental Health Awareness Month, I launched uh, my newest book called uh, Normalizing Abuse. And uh, it takes the reader on a serious yet heartfelt journey of discovery, not just of oneself, but also looking into many aspects of our everyday lives, such as abuse in academia, government, corporations, the workplace, media, family and friends, society and culture, religion, military, and so much more. It peels back the veneer hiding rampant, insidious abuse and exploitation that we just accept as normal. 
Uh, with dozens of prestigious endorsements and a powerful foreword written by pioneering spiritual educator Matthew Fox, known for his activism for gender and eco-justice, normalizing abuse is being hailed as a bullhorn for truth-telling, so desperately needed as we are called to stand up and speak truth to those wielding toxic power over us. Normalizing abuse can be purchased from all the usual booksellers and providers, and um, you can go to my website, karentate.net, or you can go to amazon.com as well. It's available in paperback, and uh, it's also available uh, in Kindle. So um, I would really appreciate if you pick it up. Uh, please do uh, write a review and um, you know, take a look at it. It uh, has snippets uh, from people from all walks of life that have contributed short little uh, stories of uh, their experiences as well as solutions uh, to normalizing abuse and the resulting trauma. We talk about whistleblowers and uh, how courageous they are uh, to call out abuse and exploitation. And there's lots of resources uh, in the book. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I've been told it's uh, very heartfelt and uh, people have already told me uh, that they have realized that uh, they probably need to get some support, um, you know, or help um, with issues that they had uh, maybe not looked at uh, for a very long time. So uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you'll pick it up and I hope it helps you as well. And um, the reading that I promised um, is uh, by Carol Dixon, and uh, it's titled uh, Becoming a Mother. And she wrote this, I believe, um, in honor of uh, all of us out here in the world who create, birth, launch, um, you know, who, um, you know, bring things into this world, uh, as well as, of course, you know, mothers who birth actual human children. And it's called Becoming a Mother. Becoming a mother is to birth a miraculous act. This is only the beginning. Tending follows. Being a mother is setting forth motion where there was stillness. And then with regularity, like the moon, one must care for what has been birthed. We are intentional mothers, determining what follows, lending our hands and hearts, sharing our awareness, always bending toward creation, creating gardens, needing tending. If mothering were only the begatting, it would be simple. The incessant, constant care is also mothering be it a book, art, a sweater, a human being, an organization. Being a mother asks us to tend to all the phases that follow the birthed spark of life. I am a mother longing to hold what I have created and yet always called to new births and gardens. I am always moving downstream, planning new dreams. Are we less of a mother for not being able to care for all we create? Time doesn't stop. Creations belong to themselves. Another lesson we always are learning as mothers, letting go, allowing autonomy, walking a thin line of freely giving and lessons of accountability. How confusing it can be to be a mother. One day, as we learn to welcome partners in the act of co-creation, we will build a land of responsibility we create beauty instead of another life to be exploited and used up and discarded. Becoming consciously birthed, we can grow a life of give and take, of generational integrity. Let's envision what we can create in companionship and love. Let us illuminate a new way, one we are only now birthing. Let us hold our own hands, soothe each other, and weave the common lands together. Let us inhale and exhale, become maiden, then mother, then crone, and then all of them at once. Let us breathe justice and kindness into what we birth. Let our vision grow wholeness and abundance for generations to come. As let us inhale and exhale, 
become maiden, then mother, then crone, and then all of them at once. Let us breathe justice and kindness into what we birth. Let our vision grow wholeness and abundance for generations to come. Thank you, Carol. That was beautiful. I appreciate you letting me read it on the show. So uh, next week, uh, my guest is uh, David Elkington, and uh, he's written the book, Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. And uh, I believe that's going to be very interesting. I am going to ask him about um, the Sistrum of Isis and the Ephesian letters of Artemis, uh, as well as sound at lots of sacred places. So you won't want to miss that. Um, I hope you will uh, go to uh, my website, karentate.net, where there's lots of new content there uh, that I just added over the weekend. And um, that about does it for me for today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I hope uh, uh, you've heard some things that are of interest or help to you. And uh, remember, tell your friends, Karen Tate is back, and my work is where spirituality, personal transformation, and social justice meet. And uh, I will close with one of my favorite quotes. Hmm. The notion that goddess was never divorced or dethroned by God, but by patriarchal human-made dogma instead. I think we can easily vision the divine couple, whether they be deities, archetypes, or ideals for spiritual, cultural, and political change, scratching their heads and wondering, whatever got into the heads of religious patriarchy, upsetting the normal balance of things. Yep. I see them sitting on their rocking chairs, scratching their heads, saying, boy, what we see out there is not what we intended. (laughs) All right, then. Thanks, everybody. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your listener loyalty. Uh, And as usual, we're going to close with a little bit on Sekhmet from Abigail Spinner McBride. Here we go. Mm -hmm. 